You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Just Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are back with the Nadolsky boys, the docs who lift, Drs. Spencer and Carl Nadolsky, who will introduce themselves in just one moment, to tackle another scientist who has sort of teetered into the pseudoscience space. Um, That is the glucose goddess, who has a new um, supplement that we'll talk about in detail in just one moment. Um, Spence and Carl, do you want to just introduce yourselves briefly? Uh, All right. Age before youth, I guess. All right. So Carl Nadelsky, I am a board certified endocrinologist, uh, internal medicine specialist, and obesity specialist. I am currently the chief of endocrinology, obesity, and diabetes at Holland Hospital, uh, assistant professor of medicine for Michigan State University. And um, I am Spencer's co-host for the Docs Who Lift podcast, and we do a lot of, especially in my world, a lot of obesity, diabetes, metabolic disease, and obviously other hormones. I am Spencer Nadolsky, the younger brother, taller uh, brother, and I Slightly skinnier, <laughs> less girth. But definitely more girth. No. I am... Uh, a board-certified family medicine physician specialized in obesity medicine, something called lipidology, the study of lipids like cholesterol and triglycerides and that type of thing. And I am a meme lord on Instagram. Apparently so. <laughs> not as much as our exactly. topic today. Yeah. So let's just set the stage with who this person is that we're going to be talking about. So you all probably know her as the glucose goddess, but her actual name is Jessie in Chowspey. She has over 3.3 million followers on Instagram. She leverages her platform to preach about blood sugar um, and also to sell various products. Um, She does hold a master's degree in biochemistry, but some of the scientific merit of her content is debatable, and we're really going to dig in today. We'll get into the specifics. Um, And again, as I mentioned, she's now delving into supplements. She recently made waves with the announcement of her latest venture called the Anti-Spike Formula. And so this new supplement is currently available for pre-order for $65 with shipments starting in April, and it promises to combat the dreaded post-meal blood sugar spike. It's marketed as a natural solution. Um, She really emphasizes its 100% natural ingredients, uh, touting it as gut-friendly, sugar-free, vegan, and gluten-free. So, and I know we're going to get into this in some of her claims, um, but just to get into what the ingredients are for the anti-spike recipe. So there are four main ingredients. And these are uh, white mulberry leaf, which is touted to potentially slow down carbohydrate absorption, lemon and cinnamon extracts touted to have potential blood sugar management benefits, and the intriguing, quote, glucose goddess antioxidants, which are a proprietary blend of undisclosed vegetable extracts. 
And as we'll get into those first three ingredients that uh, we just mentioned, they do have some extremely limited, mainly preclinical research to support some of these claims, but there's really no solid clinical evidence that they work. And even more than that, the supplement itself has not been studied. So there have no, been no clinical trials on all these ingredients, ingredients together and the supplement itself. And if anything, correct me if I'm wrong, but all those little bitty studies that are, uh, you know, really don't have a lot of great data behind them. Uh, they were in people with dysglycemia, meaning like type two diabetes, not in healthy people without diabetes. Yeah, so, anyways, so that's right? exactly right, Carl. I actually went and pulled the the studies that she um, put screenshots of in her like this is the data behind my new supplement, and um, you know the first study was looking at specifically just mulberry leaf or mulberry leaf extract, and it was with people who had it was actually a, a meta analysis on. Studies of people with glycemic issues, so dyslipidemia, type two, type two diabetes, and so on. The second study she cited was solely for individuals with type two diabetes, and it was um, it was a randomized controlled crossover trial, but it wasn't just mulberry leaf extract. It also included other things, especially fiber, which we know is very important for regulating digestion and blood sugar. And that that trial only had 30 people. So very, very small to begin with. And then the last study she cites um, was was funded and conducted by the company that produces Reducose, which is the specific brand of mulberry extract that she's putting in her anti-spike pill. So that's a pretty big conflict of interest there. And again, that study was only 38 individuals across, you know, arms and they only looked at blood sugar changes when you're consuming just sucrose, just table sugar, right? There's nothing else involved. You're not looking at it in the context of food or anything. So, you know, there's there's obviously obvious flaws in the claims she's making. And what's more concerning is that this really got, goes to the crux of pseudoscience, right? It takes these nuggets of truth or these mechanistic ideas and it really exaggerates it and it sells it to people under the guise of health when in reality, there are things that, we probably should be focusing on much more than buying these supplements that have no benefits. And, and what's really frustrating is that, you know, there was actually a, a an interview in, in today.com. Um, and, and we're airing this on Wednesday, but this was on last Thursday. Um, but basically she's, she's saying that, you know, her goal is to break down glucose related research into fun, digestible and easy to understand graphs and social media posts. She sees herself as a science <coughs> translator, between studies and the general public, but in reality, she's doing the opposite. And, and many critics of her have said that she propagates pseudoscience, she advocates a method that is not supported by evidence, and the studies that she cites routinely are either anecdotal, false, completely misinterpreted, or not relevant to the things she's claiming. And just one thing before, you know, Spencer and Carl, obviously we really want to hear from you from the clinical perspective, but there was one statistic that I saw all over her page in regard to this particular supplement. Um, she says that it will moderate glucose spikes by up to four 
40% if taken before a carb-rich meal. Andrew, did you see that statistic? I could not find where that was coming from. It was coming from that very first study that she was citing that was a, a review of some other studies with people with glycemic issues. And it was essentially, you know, looking at, you know, variability in blood sugar levels with with some of these mulberry leaf extracts that were tested in some of these studies that were included in this meta-analysis. But of course, it's not looking at her actual supplement or right. her actual formulation or even a large scale population that's representative of the population at large, right? You know, as Carl said, these studies were in people who have blood sugar issues to begin with, but she's marketing this for everyone because she makes the claim that fluctuations in your blood sugar are going to lead to insulin resistance, which is going to lead to type two diabetes. So I think that's really, you know, the problem right. is she's, she's essentially telling everybody that they need to go buy this $65 per month supplement, which has no evidence to support it. And of course, it's more expensive than <clears throat> really good medications that we have for type two diabetes that have real huge data behind them and, and actual outcomes that we know both both good and bad that we can talk about and it goes all the way back to why the heck do we even care about people's blood sugar and i want you, you guys know? to really kind of you know talk talk people through like what you know why why we detect glucose in the blood after eating how is it regulated talk a little bit about the glucose insulin pathway and and what is the relationship really between blood glucose increases after eating postprandial blood glucose increases and risk for type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance so maybe you two can walk us through that yeah. So, well, let's talk about type 1 diabetes a second, because that's where we get a lot of the data for why we don't want people to have hyperglycemia. A normal fasting glu blood glucose is less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. When it's over, when it's 126 or over, that's consistent with hyperglycemia to the point we call diabetes of any flavor, right? Um, a two-hour post-glucose challenge after the like a two-hour glucose tolerance test, we call it. If it's over 200 milligrams per deciliter, that's consistent with diabetes. Again, type 1, type 2, um, there's some other uh, other different types of, of diabetes. But hyperglycemia to the point where this is a huge problem. Prediabetes is essentially in between those two things. We have something called a hemoglobin A1c, which is really just, I tell people, it's, it's a way we measure the average estimated average sugar over three months because red blood cells live three months. They get glycated, meaning from the levels of glucose, and it correlates to an average sugar. So, for example, in a hemoglobin A1c of seven, which is a goal for a lot of people with any type of diabetes to reduce the risk that we're going to talk about is about an average of 154, 155 milligrams per deciliter, just to give you a little bit of context. So type 1 diabetes, where we get a lot of the data for why hyperglycemia is a problem, is it, it's, a, it's an autoimmune disease. There can be secondary causes where your pancreas doesn't work, doesn't make insulin. Insulin is what is secreted by the pancreas when we consume foods that get broken broken down and start raising our blood glucose. There are different phases of, of the, the insulin secretion. There's an initial uh, first phase, and then there's a second phase. 
Um, this gets into Spencer and I were just talking with somebody about the incretins or the GLP uh, one uh, hormones, the GIP, these other gut hormones that help stimulate the pancreas when it starts to sense nutrients and the, the insulin goes up. It, it goes to target cells throughout the body to essentially pull the glucose in and be used or stored, etc. There are many parts of the body that actually don't use insulin, by the way. That's actually where some of the complications come from. So in type one diabetes, though, autoimmune disease used to be thought of as juvenile, but it can happen actually anytime to anybody where the pancreas stops working. The beta cells that make insulin, they, they stop working and we develop hyperglycemia, acute hyperglycemia. When someone has that and they don't have any insulin, it's very catabolic because now they don't have anything to get the, the glucose into the, the muscle cells. Um, you, you end up with a, like an acidosis. It's called diabetic ketoacidosis potentially, which is uh, life-threatening. Uh, people lose glucose through their urine. They become very dehydrated. They lose a lot of weight. That's kind of the, the short-term issues. But even if we can't keep their glucoses to some degree controlled, and we'll talk about those goals and what those mean, the long-term complications include um, microvascular disease. When we're talking about microvascular disease, it's retinopathy. So eye disease, it's the leading cause of blindness, nephropathy, kidney disease, neuropathy, nerves. Um, when the, the issue with all these types of microvascular things is that nerve retinal in your eyes and kidney cells, they don't require insulin for intracellular glucose entry. So then when they're exposed to the glucose levels in the presence of insulin deficiency, whether it's absolute, like in like young onset type 1 diabetes, or even relative, which we'll talk about with the insulin resistance, development of type 2 diabetes, then it results in the intracellular metabolic dysfunction and increased risk of all those problems. And so for those with type 1 diabetes, I'll just talk about the a big, huge trial that was like the landmark trial in, um, in reducing glucose levels in people with type 1 diabetes, the diabetes, uh, the, the DCCT, okay, in, in type 1 diabetes. And basically, it was when we were starting to develop better insulins to better mimic um, our, our own physiology. That Insulin technology has not been great for a long time. We're talking back in the 80s when we didn't have good ways to measure glucose. You should talk to people who have had type 1 diabetes since then. It's, it's amazing, totally different than what we do now. And so, they basically randomized people to the old conventional standard with a goal of a hemoglobin A1C of 9%, mind you. Um, so 9% is like an average glucose of 212 milligrams per deciliter. Okay. And they did intensive uh, insulin management, basal insulin, which your, in, your pancreas should always be secreting a little bit of insulin to keep your fasting sugars at bay. Again, normal under 100. But um, these days, our goal is really to have it under 130 or maybe under 110 if they have type 1 diabetes. Um, and then bolus insulin with their meals to cover their meals, which um, generally is a goal to kind of keep that under 180 if we can. And the A1C goal for that intensive therapy was 7%. So they reduced the average A1C from 9, an average of 212 sugar, to, to basically 155, okay? And, um, and they reduced the rates over seven years of complications uh, 50 to 75%. And then everyone got intensive therapy because this was a huge deal. It's like, oh, okay, we got to keep people's sugars better, right? Um, and, and then everyone got randomized to or changed to the more intensive therapy, which is similar to what we do now. We do way better now, by the way, than we even did back when this trial came out. And then and there was this thing called the legacy effect. So people still had
had residual benefits down the road from that first six and a half years of intensive therapy. And then after a really, really, really long time follow-up, like 27 years, there were also what we call macrovascular benefits, um, heart disease, like reducing heart attacks, et cetera. Um, but there are other things that go along with diabetes. They, they also had some of that kidney disease and they had protein in the urine. That was correlated to cardiovascular um, detriment in addition to the hemoglobin A1C. And, and the mortality, the death benefit was there, but it was actually pretty modest. Um, it was barely statistically significant. And this is after 30 years. So the intensive therapy group getting the A1C down to 7% early on and then continuing on, it ultimately resulted in a mortality, meaning death rate, similar to a relatively healthy non-diabetic population. So from those data, we know that getting A1Cs, average sugars from down to 155 is really good. That's where you get the most bang for your buck. We can try to get some people, especially younger, healthy people, down to an A1C of six and a half if they have type one diabetes with insulin, as long as we don't cause hypoglycemia and other problems, um, and you get a little bit more benefit. You go down to six, there's a little bit of benefit. The absolute benefit is not really there. The relative benefit is still there, right? So that's a statistical thing, but the absolute benefit just starts to become minimal and the risks become more. And so it's one of those um, point of limiting mm -hmm. returns, yeah. right? And so that's why we don't push people with type 1 diabetes to really, really low levels. Now with, I'm jumping around, but, you know, with a really, really good technology, now we can do a little bit better than that because we can do it safely. But it just goes to show you that that's long time average significant hyperglycemia, not just these little bitty healthy person average glucose excursions that go maybe up to 140 because 99% of the time, healthy people without any insulin resistance or type 1 diabetes, even with ice cream or some sugar that she talks about, our sugars aren't going to go up and stay up long enough to probably really cause any problems that, that are an issue right. anyhow. So that's a type 1 diabetes study, and, that's, and that took a long time, more than I thought so. What you're saying <laughs> is that a lot of the kind of premise or the false premise that's being used is looking at people who don't have a normally functioning pancreas. They're not able to actually control their mm -hmm. blood sugars by secreting insulin, which promotes the uptake and the utilization of it. And... And they're seeing these complications as a result of this extended, long-term, excessively high blood sugar, which mm -hmm. is not what's going to happen with people who have normal functioning pancreas right. and normal insulin signaling. And there's something to some of the sh real short-term things that happen when we have really high glucose spikes, which is where I know a lot of these people like to cherry pick some of that concept. But again, we're talking about big picture stuff. And this also happens in type 2 diabetes. So just to quickly go through you know, type 2 diabetes, it's really a disease of obesity, technically, where we, we carry... Uh, an energy balance where we have excess adipose tissue. Our healthy adipose tissue uh, cells don't work that well. We start to develop more visceral obesity, meaning we get adipose tissue in our gut, in our liver, and in our pancreas. That whole thing basically leads to insulin resistance. Our healthy fat cells aren't working. We have more inflammation. That's you know obesity, metabolic syndrome, heart disease stuff also. And the the adipose, uh, the triglyceride that gets into the muscles and the liver, and then the pancreas. The pancreas can't keep up with those insulin demands, that's when you start to lose those phases of insulin I talked about. And a relative 
insulin deficiency and hyperglycemia. We have studies for type 2 diabetes going way back before we had some of these really, really good uh, medications using metformin, which helps muscle and liver use sugar better, a little bit of weight loss benefits, um, but also using things called sulfonylureas where they just stimulate the pancreas to make more insulin and also just using insulin. And those trials uh, going back to the 80s and 90s, the UK PDS, the Accord Advance and VADT in the, in the high cardiovascular risk people do also show same sort of thing. When we get A1Cs from 9 to 7 or from 8 to 7, um, a more intensive therapy, we have microvascular benefits kind of across the board and they're enduring. Now, the, the problems come into those big cardiovascular outcome trials where those people who were given metformin seem to have some benefit for sure, um, but the people who were given a lot of insulin, there were some concerns of hypoglycemia and maybe higher death rate actually in one arm of the intensive arm of, of the one called Accord, if anybody wants to nerd out and, and look that stuff up. So, so there was really the breaks were put on intensive uh, glycemic control in people with long-standing type 2 diabetes at high cardiovascular vascular risk. And, and then the concept of, well, how are we getting these uh, sugars down? So another medication that has a lot of theoretical good benefits in lipid meta metabolism called rosiglitazone um, was one of the medications used in these trials where there were some signals for um, you know heart attack reduction, all that stuff, but then higher mortality, for example, in, in some of them that, that really you know, raise those concerns leading to what we now have are these huge mega numbers of people, high cardiovascular risk studies to see not only are we making sugars better, losing weight, et cetera, but are we actually getting health outcomes, cardiovascular outcomes? So rosiglitazone turned out not to be so good. Using insulin intensely just to have better sugars in people with type 2 diabetes, maybe not so good. Type 1 diabetes, it's different. It's a complete you know, deficiency, but we can't have hypoglycemia and some of these other problems. And then, um, and actually the other glitazone, TZD, called pioglitazone, actually probably has more of the benefits with some caveats too, though. All things have side effects. And when we talk about supplements, if they are doing anything, it means they are actually medicine. Right. So they're medicinal. So these itty bitty little studies that look like they have some benefits, they might be great. You know, cinnamon, probably great. There's enough data on cinnamon, cinnamon to say, well, at least it's safe. And if people want to put it in their oatmeal, right. great. Although she might say not to eat oatmeal because you might get a little bit of a glucose spike when in reality, type 2 diabetes, by the way, we got to treat the underlying root issue of the obesity to prevent the downstream hyperglycemia and all the problems. You actually brought up a really good point, right? Because because you you made the point of with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disorder, you, you don't have a functioning pancreas, you're not producing insulin, you're not able to regulate your blood sugar whatsoever. But in type 2 diabetes, sometimes overuse of insulin or, or use of insulin in a very intense manner it's controlling the blood sugar, but it's not improving health outcomes. And that really underlies the fact that there's a lot more to health than just what your blood sugar levels, mm -hmm. especially when you do have a functioning pancreas. So Spencer, maybe you can kind of walk through like, okay, in a healthy person, you know, what should we expect postprandially? What, what is normal blood glucose extrusion? You know, why is this not something that people need to be concerned about? The real question is, do little glucose spikes, depending on if you eat uh, an apple versus you eat a cheese stick or whatever or anything like that, do these glucose excursions matter when it's not, when you don't have the underlying path? 
pathophysiology or pathology. Like type 1 diabetes, obviously, you're not making insulin. Type 2 diabetes, it's not the glucose spike uh, per se. It's the underlying pathology of what my brother was talking about, the insulin resistance. So in a normal person, again, we've we've talked about, we've had a few CGM um with you, in fact, yeah, right? I won't, we talk we'll about get CGMs? there again. <laughs> you expect to, if you eat some sort of form of carbohydrate that breaks down into glucose, and most things do, unless you're somehow getting the fructose of the of just pure fructose. I don't know how you're going to get that, but um, but most most carbohydrate containing foods are going to contain either starch that gets broken down into into glucose or pure glucose itself, and you're going to see some sort of spike. And I've you know you can see it on the glucose goddesses. Um, uh, her little, feed. her little, her little, her little gra- graphs and things like that. And you can do it yourself for the CGMs, and we'll talk about you know potential risks of this. But in general, you see, and my brother talked about it. You, you, you can do actual like a standardized uh, seventy-five grams of glucose, and you watch. You know, you can watch the blood sugars over time, and you know if they remain elevated over two hours at over two hundred, you have type two diabetes, and then one hundred and forty. Uh, milligrams per deciliter. If it's over that at at, uh, at two hours, you have what's called pre-diabetes. And my brother talked about the A1C, but a, a 5.7% A1C up to the six point uh, up to 6.5 is pre-diabetes as well. So in a normal person though uh, that doesn't have pre-diabetes, uh, you can expect an A1C below six. 5.6 and below. Uh, and then you'd also not expect to see postprandial blood sugars above 140 at, at two yeah. hours. But in general, if you were if people that wear CGMs, you'll see like this kind of little blip. And I've had some other blips when I tried to eat a ton of brownies uh, like at one time. But in general, you it's it's normal to see these glucose yeah. excursions. So the real question is. It, like, should we even be worrying about this? We had a whole podcast ourselves with uh, right. Dr. Guest, and she's a really smart uh, RD PhD, um, and she goes over it very in, in quite detail in some of her um, articles about like this may be pathologizing. Yes. It, it makes you worried about. Ex- just exactly. glucose spikes in normal healthy exactly. people it's it's normal like you should because what it means is that your body is extracting the energy from the food you just ate and then your blood sugar goes up and then your pancreas works and secretes insulin and then your blood sugar goes down and you have this negative feedback loop that is very tightly regulated in people that have functioning pancreases and so what yeah. this does is it pathologizes it, but it creates this health anxiety and it creates this like information overload where people are fixated on looking at their blood sugar level when there isn't a clinical reason for it. When in reality, there are a lot of other things that are going to lead to, you know, health outcomes and and all of these sorts of things. Yeah, I would be more worried about the underlying pathophysiology. I would right. be worried about like if there is if if the CGM or your blood sugars it kind of shows patterns of insulin resistance. You you don't need a CGM to really find those mm-hmm. types of things though. We already we already know we should probably be physically active. We should get good amounts of sleep. We should probably be as lean as we can as possible. So these little what what they're trying to insinuate, and I know this because I'm in this realm, is that these glucose spikes will then like, cause insulin resistance. And I don't know her no, specifically. No, she, she says yeah, that, she but she I know has. many people. So basically... Yeah. And that's Which not- is, you know what? I used to, I, I thought that when I was going through med school and I didn't quite understand and grasp the whole thing. I, I didn't 
and, and that's what kind of drove me down into learning more about type 2 diabetes as an obesity-driven, you know, adiposity-based insulin-resistant disease and how treating the obesity is what yeah. treats so, it, right. so when you know, not, right. not, not the glucose spikes. You can do it with a low-fat, high-carb diet, low-carb, you know, right. high-fat, all the different right. things. It doesn't matter and, what your glucose spikes are And when you actually look the at the evidence, there, there is no robust evidence that there's a causal link between the number of glucose extrusions, the mm-hmm. severity of them, mm-hmm. and risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So, mm-hmm. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The underlying underlying (laughs) pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance is energy excess. And And genetics and how how that energy excess ends up, you know, affecting individuals. Where you store it. So, like, yeah, because people could eat mostly carbohydrates in a lower calorie manner and they're not going to develop type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. It's not going to happen. We're talking about kind of like the pathologizing of these sorts of like uh, excess like health monitoring and supplements and things like that. And I think, you know, I want to talk about the, the continuous glucose monitors in, in just a second, but I think, you know, one thing that people often are like, and I, and I was reading some of the comments because there were some very valid critiques of her supplement, um, about how there haven't been clinical studies that, that there's no evidence that, normal people, you know, you should have these fluctuations in blood sugar. This is a normal process and it's regulated by your body. Your body's really great at sensing and regulating these things. And that, and that she's kind of promoting this, this disordered behavior, this disordered eating. And, and the bigger problem is that platforming this type of pseudoscience really is linked to belief in medical conspiracism and rejection of evidence-based science. And we see that, um, there was, there was a study in January back in 2014, and they find that um, there's a direct kind of relationship between number of medical conspiracies respondents agreed with. And these are things from vaccines are harmful to they include microchips to uh, uh, pesticides are poisoning us to, you know, sunscreen causes skin cancer, all of these things. But, but as people believe more and more of those, they also, a higher proportion of them use herbal supplements. They, you know, mm-hmm. stop going to the doctor to get preventative physicals. They stop getting their flu shots. They stop using sunscreen. They stop visiting the dentist. So it's beyond just, oh, she's selling a supplement. If you don't believe in it, don't buy it. It's, it's really, right. it's fomenting this environment of medical conspiracies being, you know, aligning with this herbal supplement industry. After our, our Andrew Huberman podcast, there are people saying like, what, what's the harm? What's the, right. and we talked yes. about this in the podcast and he's an overall net positive. And I would say, how do you know that? It could be an overall net negative just by the many flu shots that just right. got avoided. And so with, with this, you think, what's the harm? So if people start you know, looking at their blood sugars more, the harm is a high amount of yeah. anxiety, r- not eating foods that are 
pretty helpful for you despite higher glycemic excursions. That's the harm. The harm. Do you know how much anxiety? Like I got anxiety when I got an A1C that was 5.6 <laughs> one time. I got a glucometer. I was like, what the hell's going on? And then I tested it again. It was right. like 5.2. I was like, what? And right. I got a, I, I, I got a these things are not perfect. And I got a CGM, and one time it, it was it was faulty, and it I was like, oh, I have type two diabetes. That's it. <laughs> it went up yeah. to two. The, the rest called me down. Let me get you a replacement for from. I don't. I guess I'll probably get sued if I say the name of, but it's one of the most popular CGMs out there. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I got a replacement. It's like, oh, okay, it's fine. I did try to stress test it with brownies and pizza, and it. it I saw it go up, and then it went yeah. right back down. Um, and it doesn't in normal, uh, normal eating, it was completely fine. So the path pathology, there's a lot of anxiety. And, and then also, uh, people don't think about the harm to their yes. wallets and we don't know like these supplements. So, okay. So I was just looking and at they the side effects, the mulberry extract. I did see there was a normal glycemic, uh, healthy population. They did, um, do a study and, and it, and there's probably some effects. Some, we have these alpha glucosidase inhibitors It inhibits the breakdown of starch in our our guts. And so you don't get as, you don't absorb it. It goes through you. So when you're thinking about these supplements though, we like, so you think about prepared proprietary, ex, uh, proprietary blends yep. and all these different things. And this is why we, we had a supplement called glycosolf. So we were glucose, we were glucose gods in the day, but uh, <laughs> we actually but we went broke because we're not quacks. We, 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 we didn't make it proprietary. It was, it was berberine was in it. And um, this, I think, I don't know if she has berberine in the, not in her, this there one, might be but, some but it's probably coming. It's probably Probably so anyway, the reason we stopped doing it because we couldn't ethically, we couldn't recommend it over guideline, guideline directed medicated that are really good that have great data. And we know yes. the safety. Well, that, so so you look at these small yeah. studies that so, she's putting yeah. together and then combine them all. You can't just, you, you just said something really important. It's the, the number one question that we have to ask anytime you're reading a study is, Oh, she's saying these things are great compared to what, you know, because these things, first of all, we, yeah. there have been no studies about the supplement and there have been no head to head studies with the supplement versus actual, as you just said, you know, clinically backed um, recommendations. And the other thing is something that really pisses Andrea <laughs> and, and me off quite a bit is this appeal to nature fallacy. And, and the glucose goddess is really leaning mm -hmm. into it with that whole all natural thing that, you know, we know that herbal extracts can have very serious adverse effects on people. There could be dangerous yeah. drug interactions. Exactly. They're, they can unregulated cause, uh, they're unregulated. They're unregulated. They can cause acute mm -hmm. liver and kidney toxicity. Um, there's a, 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 a link here we'll put in our show notes. Supplement overdosing accounted for 20% of liver damage and hepatoxicity, Hepa sorry, hepatoxicity, okay, in the U.S., I read it, <laughs> I don't say it out loud, sorry, in the U.S. in 2017, and that, that number is obviously definitely a lot higher now because we know that supplements have just been a booming industry. So when people are like, well, what is the harm? These are just herbal supplements. <laughs> there can be actual harms that, you know, I'm with the herbal supplements, especially the proprietary blends, you know, there's a lot of plants out there that are very toxic at very low doses. And, and, you know, you can't, you have no way of knowing this, right? She's selling these things. She's using this this loophole in the supplement industry by saying it's proprietary to pretend like it's trade secret, and that's why she doesn't want to disclose it. 
But then you have literally no idea of what you're putting into your body. And it's very confounding that the people that are so, you know, resistant to FDA approved regulated medications that have safety and efficacy data, and they always harp on ingredients are perfectly fine consuming things that have no visibility into the ingredients. Well, that gets to my point, Spencer, is that then we have real people with actual disease who might be falling for this, right? So they might have real obesity, real prediabetes metabolic syndrome, or real type 2 diabetes who are then going, oh, yeah, I need to do what, you know, do what glucose goddess is saying, which if they followed her dietary advice, wouldn't be wrong. We've talked about this offline. It's pretty good, actually. But then, but it's the same thing everyone says, (laughs) because it's, it's very reasonable. But then they, if they choose that over medications that we now have that do lower glucose for real in, in true diabetes or prediabetes, hyperglycemia, prevent diabetes, um, doing the right nutrition exercise for the weight reduction, and have the microvascular, the macrovascular outcome benefits that we were just talking about, that's huge yeah. harm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that, like, I'm trying to think of how I would approach if I were her and how I would do a business. I'd probably have like a little guidebook for those with pre diabetes and type 2 diabetes. The supplement thing, I wouldn't make it proprietary. I would make, I would use the most rigorously studied supplements. I would make, and then I would probably, if I'm making enough money, I'd try to fund some sort of study and then say, look, if you're somebody that doesn't tolerate all these other medicines, I don't know. I'm trying to think of how I would do it ethically, but like to me, this that's is why just, we didn't do it. That's why we got out of the game. Because we but the other thing is that you two are are looking at it in the context of taking this if you have disease, right? She's mar- yeah, she's, she's marketing this healthy. for everyone. She says it is a supplement for the thousands of people who have asked me for a supplement to support their glucose journey. I am so proud of this formula, so proud of this product. I know you will love it as much as I do. It's the best supplement in the market with gold standard science backing it. <laughs> and... You take two capsules once a day before the meal of your day, highest in carbs or sugar. It's very similar to how you would use vinegar. If you want a little extra help to keep your glucose steady, to help your insulin resistance, again, she's suggesting that regular people are developing insulin resistance, but also helping your cravings and your fatigue, anti-spike has got your back. So she's essentially, she's also lumping in cravings and fatigue, which have many, many potential causes, right? We know people get weird cravings when they're depressed, when hormones are fluctuating. You can be fatigued for a variety of things, but she's saying, well, it's all because your blood glucose is spiking and and your pancreas isn't properly working, which which of course is not the case. Where is a supplement going to be available? Is it going to be available on in the United website, States? Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's the thing. I mean, we can tell this quick story. Uh, we talked about this on our podcast with our supplement called glycosolve. Again, it's not available <laughs> anymore, but I had a marketing team that um, basically I gave them the studies of here's pure berberine, 500 milligrams, 97 or 98% pure. Here are the studies. And they came up with these claims of like lowers blood sugar by XYZ. And those with type two, it was very like, you're not allowed to make claims like this on supplements. Yes. It's it's the FDA regulates that. So we got an FDA letter. Uh, <laughs> and it was addressed to Dr. me. Dr. loves to yeah, share it. They, people love to bring it up. I'm like I'm and I'm very honest about it. I'm like yeah, I was I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't realize I didn't know what was going on. But the claims that you're discussing reduces fatigue. The greatest supplement out there. I'm surprised the FDA is. Yeah, the FDA. Someone's probably going to go. So, you can't do that. 
she found a loophole and God, that's, well, it is. So it's, the other thing insane. is that we, you know, obviously it's not on the market yet, but there is a way to report fraudulent claims made by supplements because they are not regulated by the FDA for safety and efficacy. They cannot make claims about helping medical issues, right? They cannot yeah, make can. those. And right, there right. is a, a, an HHS reporting platform that you can use. It's how, um, uh, what was that company that just got, um, that got banned? And um, the one that was all over um, MSNBC, uh, Balance of Nature, Balance of Nature, oh, wow. they were doing the same thing. They were saying oh. it, it cured COVID and it did all this. So, so if you make, <sighs> but the problem Jeez. is, is that the FDA wow. can't step in until after the product's on the shelf. So it, it requires people to file mm. these claims that that they are making false statements about benefits because supplements are not regulated as medications. So they cannot make those claims. You know what I find ironic about this whole thing? So she, aren't she and Peter Atia kind of yeah, buddies or something? Because they both like over-exaggerate the CGM yes, and, and uh, claims. And Mark Hyman but as well. Oh yeah, Mark Hyman, that's right. Well, so he's the one that tells everyone, even healthy people, to take medication foreman uh for longevity which has zero data for it and so now we have these like i don't to me like these two sort of discordant extremes like Metformin is a very good medication, has a lot of efficacy and safety data for people with type 2 diabetes, even pre-diabetes, diabetes prevention, bringing glucose levels down, like I said, preventing microvascular complications, probably having some overall you know, heart and mortality benefits with it too, but that's for people with diabetes, mind you. So people without any diabetes, I still would never tell anybody to, I don't take it and it's cheap and we have a ton of efficacy and safety data, let alone some random supplement that has a few people in a couple of studies that helps maybe minimize prandial excursions and we have zero long-term right. data for it. Um, and maybe it's fine, but but God, I, I'd rather spend $1 a month on metformin than $65 on, on a supplement. And I yeah. still wouldn't do it because it's medicine. We shouldn't be taking drugs if we don't need it. The, the more risk you have and the more we know the benefits of medications and supplements in anyhow, then the better the risk to benefit profile is. Over-the-counter Orlistat, uh, lipase inhibitor, for it's literally approved medicine for obesity, but it is over-the-counter, by the way, and it has good efficacy and safety data for obesity and some, you know, lipids and, and diabetes things, absolutely better worth your money. Way more safety data and actually has some benefits other than oily stools. Carl opened the door and I and I want to make sure that we we touch on the CGM phenomenon because this goes hand in hand, right? Yeah. She kind of got her, she made her mark selling these, these books called the, the Glucose Revolution and um, the Glucose Goddess Method, all of these for healthy people to make sure that their blood sugar is never changing, which we know is is absurd and, you know, it should change. Um, but she also obviously aligns with with people and herself recommending this, this CGM continuous glucose monitors, which we know are not evidence-based for people who are not pre-diabetic or diabetic. So maybe, Spencer, you can kind of summarize, you know, the, the potential issues with, with CGMs, especially in combination with these other pathology issues of, you know, demonizing blood sugar. Yeah. I, I don't want to stop people from being curious. I've done it myself. And if you're going to do it, if you're going to get a seat, cause you're like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. I just kind of want to see if you're going to do it, make sure you have somebody that you're working with that helps you understand 
things like exercise, just blueberries, whatever, these things can spike your glucose. And, to, and if you just kind of blindly follow someone who says glucose spikes are bad for you, you will, it will cause anxiety. So if you're just going to do it, just if you're, because I know people are probably listening, like, I want to try, I just kind of want to try it. I want to see what it's like. Make sure you have just the proper guidance of doing it. Otherwise, I strongly wouldn't rec, I, I would strongly not recommend doing it if you don't have anybody to help you uh, coach you through it. Who, who understands it, by the way, not I was just somebody say a trustworthy, yeah, trustworthy person. Not the, person. Not the low carb zealots, because they're right. going to tell you to eat bacon instead of a banana. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly, that's what we, we always bring up the bacon instead of blueberries. Like, imagine the, the bacon's not going to spike your your blood sugar afterwards, but a cup of blueberries, a couple, cup of, couple cups of blueberries will. So, you can also just eat a stick of butter. It's not going to do anything to your sugar. Yeah. So, I, I, like, honestly, I, I would, if you're if you're healthy, you've never had blood sugar problems, you know, I, I probably wouldn't do it. We already know the things that are going to be helpful for you, staying lean as much as possible, uh, having a, a good dietary pattern, regardless of if there's fruit and other carbohydrate-containing foods in, in their physical activity and sleep. Uh, and I, I wouldn't... And if and if you do use a CGM, I wouldn't start taking extra supplements just to kind of blunt the spikes of of your blood sugars. Again, unless you're talking to a doctor who says, "Yeah, it looks like you have some insulin resistance," and in which case, I would use uh, FDA approved yeah. uh, medicines well, instead. And, and yeah. And I think, you know, you raise a great point there, which is, you know, if you're wearing it because you're simply curious, that's one thing. But but I think nowadays people are getting to this habit of wearing it and using it to inform the decisions they make about the foods they're eating and the behaviors they're doing. And we know that avoiding some of these very nutrient-dense and fibrous foods that will lead to a perfectly normal and expected increase in blood sugar can lead to other health impacts, right? We've talked about fiber and how it's really important in preventing gastrointestinal diseases and cancers. And, you know, we are seeing rises in certain types of cancers. So, you know, we don't know if that's a link, but but again, it's not, you know, blood glucose is not the only thing that that informs your health. And, and there's really no evidence that healthy people need to be monitoring this. There was a small study that looked at healthy people without diabetes, and they found that 96% of the time, all of those people were, were within the 80 to 140 milligram per deciliter range um, every time they looked at a reading. So, And that's the study in healthy people on CGM to show what is kind yeah. of normal and healthy. Only 2% of the time, did, and which is 30 minutes a day, did people spend over 140, yeah. mind you. And does that even exactly. matter? I don't know. No. And, it, and that little bit, maybe, but that little bit exactly. is not much. Exactly. And like you said, there are other things, even in, by the way, type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, who we treat all day long in endocrinology and, and cardiology and stuff, we are trying to not be what we call glucose-centric. There is so much more to health than just their glucose levels. Like I just said, we can get only so much bang for the buck by getting their average sugars down and preventing those complications, but we don't want to cause other harm just to do it. And we got to think much more holistically. Um, for example, someone with heart disease and kidney disease, they might have an A1C of six, but they should actually be on some of these medications like a GLP-1 receptor agonist and SGLT2 inhibitors to reduce the risk of heart disease and kidney disease and later not, on. And not yes. mulberry extract. And not mulberry extract. <laughs> And, but yes, their sugars will get even better and they'll right. have normal sugars now. That's which great. Is great. I think I think that's the perfect point to wrap up on, right? You know, if you have complex health 
issues, history, concerns, you shouldn't be taking the advice of someone who's selling a supplement on social media and is making claims that are outside the scope of what data are saying and not factoring in the very complex relationship that we have with our bodies and beyond simply looking at blood glucose. So Thank you, uh, Nadolsky boys, for joining us. This was a really, really thorough discussion, I think. Hopefully, it will alleviate some of the questions and concerns that folks had about um, Glucose Goddess and this new anti-spike supplement. Um, so thank you again for joining us. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you want to support our efforts and help us grow the reach of Unbiased Science, Check out our website. We have our weekly newsletter, which is at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Our website is www.unbiasedscipod.com. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube and all of our social handles. The handle is at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.